Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Council. Who am I and where did I go? Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are here on a hot summer evening in the counseling house and we are here with yet another fascinating fascinating topic but uh josh how are you i'm good i'm good Good. i think today we're going to talk about dissociative identity disorder we're going to talk about dissociative identity that one something i've been working uh, with that disorder for about six years now five years now something like that yes indeed uh so dissociation in general Mm -hmm. is a really interesting topic uh what is your interest what draws you to working with dissociation in general well, uh, I, I don't know what draws other people in, but I think when I was a student intern, I had a client who I'd been working with for a little while who, who through some evaluations and some surprising events, realized, hey, there's some dissociation here. Upon further evaluation, realized, I'm not sure I'm eligible to work with you. And I had a supervisor who you know, said, well, maybe you need to refer this person out. There was a discussion about it. Long story short, it just wasn't an option. Um, without going into details, it was one of those like, okay, you know, either, either, you know, this person's not going to get their needs met or, (laughs) or I'm going to go into a lot of specialized training as a student going and getting trained in EMDR, you know, before graduating. That's grad school. That's tough when the option is like (laughs) this thing or the client doesn't get the needs met and somebody has to be left hanging. It was a complex scenario, but, but it was kind of like, you know, you know, rock up and, 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 and go get trained. Uh, and that meant, you know, getting a lot of extra training, getting a lot of extra classes, getting EMDR trained, uh, you know, taking some specialized trauma training classes. You know, some of these things cost, you know, thousands of dollars to go do, you know, multiple trips you know, out of state to get some of this training done. Um, there just wasn't a whole lot of room to do anything else. And I think it was one of those things where it's like, should I, should I do this or... Or just could maybe... They, there was To me, there wasn't really a whole lot of op- options. So... Um, yeah. So... So you you've done a lot of very specialized training to work with dissociation in you know similar yes, fashion. Yes, so it, it got it, it, you know, and the thing is with dissociation, you could always use more tools. Right. Well, what <laughs> you I'm thinking, could always use more. Well, what I'm thinking. So, so you've done a lot of specialized training here. I'm doing this really specialized training for sex addiction, and you know, some traveling out of state for that one also. And you know, I've heard you know there's specialized training for EMDR and attachment and trauma informed CBT, all these specialties. What am but I'm wondering, though, well, I'm wondering if maybe we should maybe dispel some myths around dissociation because sure. uh, so one might think, you know, I used to think when I knew very little, uh, you know, dissociation is like, the, oh, the multiple personality, you know, the, the shifting different personas, who's going to come out next. And like, definitely, I can't be in the room with this person unless I've spent these thousands of dollars and gone out of state for months and months. And, and I'm wondering is dissociation really that sort of a big, bad, scary thing? Or is it actually more common than we think it is? And and then do you need specialized training to work with it at all? Or are there some versions, some shades of dissociation that are maybe more common, more 
more frequent that we might see more frequently. I, I think there are people who work with dissociation on a regular basis without knowing that they're doing mm. it, and they do just fine. Uh, there yeah, are so spectrums. Yeah, there, yeah, there's definitely spectrums of dissociation where uh, you're going to need some specialized training. Right. Um, you know, and again, I think that there are people out there who work with, say, DID or the very, very far spectrum, you know, dissociative patients, and um, maybe they have a natural you know, skill for it and natural aptitude for it, but it's going to go very poorly uh, without, you know, pulling in all the community knowledge as much as possible. And again, you can never have enough, you know, we, we can never have enough tools. And so there isn't a person out there that just naturally has all the natural giftings and is going to be good enough for that. You know, you can take all the community resources and spend obnoxious amounts of money on training. Like I have just to study dissociation and try to understand it uh, to the best of our you know, human existence ability to understand it right now. Mm-hmm. And it's still like, I'd, I'd like to know more. I'd like mm-hmm. to understand more. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's still more out there. I know yeah. we can still learn more about this. Definitely. <laughs> so here, here's what I'm thinking. I'd like to hear a little bit, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what sure. association is, where it comes from. But then I'd like to also go back and talk about, because you've talked about how DID is one very far end of the spectrum. Sure. And I'll sometimes throw out the, like the pop culture, very exaggerated example of the Fight Club characters. <laughs> to, that's like a very 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 extreme uh maybe kind of made up example <laughs> i'm not sure if i can speak to that i'm not sure if i've seen the whole movie <laughs> right yeah. uh yes but but it, but it would be great to also talk about what's on the other end of the spectrum like yeah. the, the dissociations that people work with all of the time yeah i mean realizing like it. uh I don't like know. In, in addictions context you know um, has anybody ever say you know maybe they're commuting across the bridge from portland to vancouver or vice versa and they realize that they were getting to their destination but they don't remember crossing the bridge but they must have because they're here. Yeah. Or I'm going <laughs> you know to talk about. Yeah, or I'm going to say, you know, I mean, when we, when we talk about dissociation, there's maybe, you know, when we get to like the milder end yes. of the spectrum, there's maybe a thin line, blurry line between dissociation and I'm just like distracting myself. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, and again, we, the, 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 where, where is the crossover? Where's the line? Right. And I did, I was talking about a healthy, you are not necessarily healthy, but you know, but, the, but the, an example of dissociation that's extraordinarily common by driving across the bridge. I don't want anyone to pathologize For that because sure. a lot of people can relate to that. Right. That's a common example. That's okay. another, <laughs> or another common example when we talk about addictions, especially when we we'll talk about sex and porn addiction, mm-hmm. which has a high fantasy preoccupation component to it. Right. They'll often talk about the the addicted person when they're acting out, shifting into a trance-like state. Yes. In which there is a dissociative component to that experience. Even though they're the same person, they're not losing time and, and things like that. Very different. But, right. Well, but I mean, anyway. Just if you dissociate, you don't have to lose time. That could be a myth. Right, right, right. Yeah, myths. Anyway, so what is dissociation emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, neurologically? Yeah, so dissociation is, uh, and again, people can argue and refine the definition. So, you know, I didn't bring my dictionary with me, but, but it is uh, a lack of being present. Um, and that is a very complex, you know, spectrum uh, that can express itself in a number of different ways. Um, and we become less present um, usually due to um, chronic anxiety or trauma. And um, I could speak to my own personal theories on this, but we have different types of dissociative mechanisms. So ways where that can uh, express itself. Uh, maybe you, some people think, oh, so there's neurological tricks by the brain that allow people to not be present uh, with certain emotions or to feel numb or to even go into a fugue state or, um, you know, um, 
you know, have certain kinds of triggers and all these things are true and they express themselves in all kinds of different ways. And I, I believe very strongly that that relates to, you know, what their brain was doing when they had trauma or chronic stress or, uh, you know, so very strong acute stress or chronic stress, you know, different developmental points in life are going to trigger different dissociative mechanisms to say, stick around. I personally believe that as children are growing up, their brain is still very complex, um, but it's not really equipped for the normal adult tasks that you and I face every day. Um, And it's definitely not equipped for the trauma that uh, maybe our adult brain can work through. So a child's you know, brain is not equipped for adult tasks. Makes sense. Not equipped to deal with adult trauma not, either, which also makes sense. Yeah. So, so so what happens to a child, you know, varying ages, of course, when it's a when it's faced with something that's too complex for it to process. I mean, I can barely process, you know, some trauma. You know, so to see adults that are struggling to handle, you know, trauma. Um, kids are not equipped. So what happens when the kid's not equipped? And there's a lot of theories out there, like a lot of the people will talk about how, well, it was either this or the brain was going to shut down. And so obviously it chose dissociation. And I, I, I kind of see the merit of some of those arguments. I kind of think the kids naturally have dissociative mechanisms at different stages and that they just grow out of them, like sucking your thumb. You know, if I suck my thumb, it's a mechanism my brain uses to maybe calm my vagal nerve. There's a lot of science behind that. Okay. Um, but there's an age-appropriate behavior but if I have a lot of stress or trauma at the age where that area, where there's an age-appropriate behavior, I don't outgrow that behavior. That network in my brain that causes me to suck my thumb, that, that map in my brain that prompts that behavior becomes so strong that when the brain comes through and prunes it, it survives. And some of that is sounding very similar to yeah. what happens with, with addictions where, yep. you know, you, especially, uh, especially. Yeah. When addiction to a substance, to a chemical, to a certain behaviors introduced at a younger age, you know, you know, adolescents or younger, especially, um, uh, the, the behavior functions in a certain way. It accomplishes something and it be, it can become a survival skill, a, a survival mechanism, right. which in the moment works in the long term, it definitely does not work and actually causes quite a few problems, but it right. sounds like what you're saying. It's kind of out of place. Does right. sucking your thumb cause problem at the age of nine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Massive problems. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like what you're saying, if the stress is high enough, yep. then like the cost-benefit analysis, the, the instinctive limbic cost-benefit analysis says, it's worth it to continue this damaging, destructive behavior. Yeah, something like that. I, I don't, so I don't know what, by mecha- what kind of mechanism the brain prunes certain behaviors or mechanisms that it's trying to outgrow. Um, but the effective outcome is that the behavior stays, the network in the brain stays past the point that it normally would, maybe because of overuse. You know, maybe the brain was trying to prune it and it was too strong. Um, I don't know, something, you know, those are the terms they use in neurology. Um, but what I mean to say, just to create some clarity, and this might be a little controversial and I'm definitely open to being wrong, um, but the more you study the brain, the more you study development, the more it looks like that some of these mechanisms might actually be natural at different stages. And I do mean to say that kids are naturally dissociative. I do. I, I feel that way. I mean, when you look at the the brain and you look at brain waves and you look at some of those patterns, it's like, yeah, kids look like they're always dissociative. Maybe they are. Maybe it's something we outgrow yeah. or maybe we don't. <laughs> well, haven't you also said in some of other conversations about dissociation to it, to a very mild degree, being a normal part of even adult life, like, or having, or I mean, I think, I think we would have to get into the semantics of, of definitions of dissociation. Yeah. And I don't know that that's a super fixed definition. Again, okay. I could be wrong. But uh, it's something that we are always refining. So the way yeah. you define it, maybe, 
Um, but I'm open to definitions that adults don't have to do at yeah. all. You know, mm. I guess I'm wondering. There's the pathological type of dissociation, but yeah. then there is if we can say, is it dissociative it, to say meditate? Right, or even to know. say, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not maintaining a hyper focus on my present moment at all times in all contexts. Sometimes True. I just need to give my brain a break from what I'm doing because I'm tired. Right. Um. You know, I'm I'm thinking of you know the average you know Netflix binge, or even just like watching like a show or something, or scrolling through Facebook for a little while. Like we could say there might be like a dissociative, definitely a disconnective mm-hmm. aspect to that. It's distracting you from your current reality. And maybe we could say it's like a very mild dissociative mechanism, yeah. but it has a very functional. Yeah, I'm open to a spectrum where mm-hmm. where is a normal engagement, you know. Yeah. Um, so when know, does... and, and I'm also open to being convinced that that none of that is useful. Uh, like I'm open to both. I am. Yeah. And I, I tend to keep an open mind. And the reason why I keep a big open mind is because the amount of variety of people that come into your office when you specialize in dissociation, they can look so different and they come in with different rules and they come in with different models. And you really have to build your expectation and the rules of dissociation over and over again with each client, have a different set of understanding for each client. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And so I'm open to a lot of different rules. But I'm going to change in the moment I have a client that feels different. I'm going to work in a different framework for that client. How oh, very adaptive. Okay. You. <laughs> well, I recommend being very adaptive. I do. I really, really yeah. do. That that uh, um, because clients again who were say severely sexually abused at five are going to be very dissociatively different than clients that were were, were sexually abused at seven. Very big difference. Mm. Okay. And you're going to have to change a lot of the rules. You're going right. to have to change your approach dramatically. <laughs> and that's only one kind of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, there's there's that question of like, does it have to be this kind of abuse to cause this kind of disorder? And mm-hmm. I hear a lot of people arguing, you know, locally in the field on that. And I, I think I think the answer is no, but um, there's no hard and fast rules, but there might be some pretty strong tendencies. Right. <laughs> so then that's a little bit about what dissociation is, a little bit about where it comes from. Um and and to clarify, just you were talking about you know myths around dissociation. It is dissociation, not disassociation. Okay, Ooh, that is a that. very critical piece. People say, and I would say most. And if students are listening, yeah, it's most of you. You've done it. Okay, <laughs> it's not. It is not dissociation. Sorry, I gotta remember the wrong one. It's not dissociation. It's dissociation. Disassociation is incorrect. Okay. And pe- most people do say it incorrectly. Most therapists do say it incorrectly. Clients who've been in therapy a while, therapists who've done a reasonable amount of training will recognize when you say it incorrectly. Okay. It's dissociation. Is there a meaning to disassociation versus dissociation? It's just pronunciated wrong. Okay, just Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and it does matter. I think I think that if you I I can't tell you how many people and I would say most people who've told me they specialized in PTSD or dissociation will still say it wrong. And I, I try to be grace-filled. It's just, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> nah, and I get it. I, I have my my verbal grammatical pet peeves yeah. that people do too. So we'll maybe save those for another podcast, but they're there. <laughs> so. so please pronounce it right. Dissociation, not disassociation. Right. So then what do you do or what what is helpful for a person who dissociates so um yeah so this is a cop out answer and i i i'm going to say it just because it's a good way of of remembering how uh adaptive you must be the right answer is the answer that works but 
more practically. Um, there's a lot of tools that are useful. But again, you know, starting with the right answer is the answer that works because I have therapies that work for a lot of dissociation. Um, but I've had one or two that doesn't work on. And so I adapt. I use other techniques. Okay. I find that uh, certain types of EMGR are incredibly helpful. Um, you know, Bessel van der Kolk encourages neurofeedback, specifically alpha theta is a specific kind of neurofeedback that's very effective when they're ready for it. And I'd say you have to ask that question about everybody for every approach. Are they ready for EMDR? That's a good question too. Uh, one that's not talked about as much, but is just unbelievably effective is just play therapy for adults. I'm talking about for adults. I know you've okay. talked to me about play therapy several times. Yeah, it's a big deal. And just get a sand tray. It's not that hard. Take a sand tray class at Longoma. It's really easy. I mean, it's fun. It's really fun. You know? <laughs> um, and I have a little sand tray and, and I've got puppets and toys and stuff. And if they are far enough down the dissociation, you know, the, the dissociative spectrum, you are, I've got myself all turned around now, <laughs> you know, but if they're far enough down the spectrum, you know, they can have uh, different ego states that can take over the body and they can present as little kids. And, you know, if you have an adult who shows up in your room and they're acting like a kid, the best thing you can do is just a bunch of toys out, you know, something in the room triggered them. And when you can calm them down and ground them with non-directive play therapy, um, they'll tell you what's on their mind. Well, when you, you and I have talked about play therapy, mm-hmm. and it's, it's uh, new to me outside of my, my scope yeah. of training. You've talked about it as it relates to like interpersonal system theory, and each piece represents an aspect of the person. And if you can get them all like working together, talking together, that synergizes and it helps the person yeah. understand themselves better. Well, if you're talking about specifically like classic, you know, DID and Santre, they have, and this is again, I'm comfortable with this being controversial, but viewing this this way makes them make perfect sense. They have the ability to kind of create uh, realities and rules and laws in their mind. Um, that's why they're very, very, very good at doing things like the conference table with the MDR. They can visualize, you know, all their different ego states, you know, standing around a table or existing in a house and uh, they can create rules. And these rules have inception. They cause real world consequences in their life and they can seemingly very easily create uh, rules like I'm going to put a wall here. I'm going to change this thing in my mind in this kind of state or in the sand tray, and it has dramatic real world consequences for them. This does not work on your regular clients, but it has it has inception for them. For someone um, who and if associates... you want to understand inception, go watch the movie Inception. <laughs> that I will explain it. I've been wanting to watch <laughs> but it has inception anyway. for them. They control that reality in their mind, and sometimes it's multi layered. The inner reality affects the outer reality. Yes, which, in a very deep, profound, right. and direct way. We could say that that's the case for everyone, but it sounds like especially true, or especially vividly. Well, I, true I can't. For... I can't close my eyes, visualize, you know, a house where maybe I'm interacting with, say, like I was a soldier. So let's say I view, you know, uh, a a version of myself in fatigues, and then I change something about that room. It's not going to have immediate direct impact on my life right away. Like it would, they would be theirs. Right. What would would be an example of a person who dissociates changing something in their inner life that has a drastic real world impacts? Say, say it again one more time. So, so you're talking about uh, for someone who dissociates, they're doing something in their sand tray, which represents something in their mind. They change something about their inner reality that has drastic impacts on their yeah, outer so, life. Yeah, so a lot of it, that, that there's there's a lot of you know internal conflict, which is I recommend that if you want a, a, a theory to use with DID, internal family systems is beautiful. 
with integrated play therapy, EMDR, and just about anything else you can get your hands on. But if I had to choose three, it'd be EMDR, well, four, neurofeedback, EMDR, play therapy, and internal family systems kind of to, to branch it all together. But when you're dealing with, say, a sand tray, um, and you're being non-directive as much as possible, like I encourage you to study actual non-directive play therapy, you're going to step back and make non-judgmental, non-directive observations about what's going on in the sand tray. They'll work it out themselves. You don't, you're not important, okay? <laughs> you're you're right. just not important. They'll work it out themselves. They have this external space that grounds them. Uh, being more grounded allows them to interact with uh, more ego states and do so more efficiently because they have reference points that they don't have to keep in their head. So essentially you're kind of freeing up some hard drive space for lack of a better way of describing it, which allows them to organize themselves more efficiently, allows them to communicate between ego states more efficiently. And a lot of it's going to be in their head. They're not going to be doing it out loud. Though there's going to be some muttering and some talking between different toys. You'll be privy to maybe 10% of the information. Um, But the outcome is that the conflict becomes resolved. Um, just I've, by giving them a way to manifest it outside of themselves. I've never had a sand tray therapy with someone who had DID that didn't result in immediate, not immediate, but, but result in significant progress with one session. Okay. So that's a big claim. That's remarkable. But it's never not happened. Okay. Not once. And I work with lots and lots of people with DID. Um, it's hard to get them to do sand tray sometimes. Um, they need to find a positive way to relate to that. Again, the reality is that there's more resistance than they want to admit. And that's another piece of the talk that, that ultimately we talked about how there's this reality in their head that they can cause inception with. Um, it's very, very strong, has world war consequences. They're in charge of that reality. They don't, they don't actually want to own that though. <laughs> they don't, they don't want to own the fact that they're in charge of that reality. They want to own the fact that they can manipulate it. You know, they, they want to feel, they want to, they want to, um, you know, they want to feel subjected to it because they, because they don't want to have to take responsibility for it. Is that partly just uh, and, and because yeah. their current reality is their homeostasis and any change, even positive change would be change and imbalance? Well, and well, in, in, invariably, you know, the system has been built and is now maladaptive, um, but it continues to evolve and maladapt to continue avoid having to um, unify and integrate uh, you know, hurtful memories and painful memories. Yeah. And so, so I mean, like, you know, there has to be some willpower to actually face and, uh, you know, go back and look for some of the lost, you know, damaged parts of ourselves um, and refeel and, and remember and uh, put it together. And it's, it's a painful process. And, you know, how, how can you blame them for, for having hesitancy to go through that? Yeah. Well, again, <laughs> and I'm thinking about, and, Here's me, the addictions counselor, filtering everything through the addictions lens, but I'm thinking about the process of coming out of an active addiction process. And it's, you know, it's a painful process. It can be terrifying, frightening, really disorienting. A lot of it has to do with taking responsibility for your own experience, taking responsibility for your your past, your your things that were done to you in the past, choices you made because of that, choices you make in the, in the present moment, uh, taking responsibility for your current state, your current feelings, and... um you know, learning how to, you know, do just, you know, basically rewrite all of your instincts so that you're mm-hmm. not freaked out by your emotions anymore or, or by crises. And, you know, that process, that change, it's disorienting and it means stepping out. Sometimes it means stepping out of a, a victim stance to mm-hmm. take ownership of things, to take responsibility, to see oneself as strong, capable, worthy, um, which then has right. effects on well, the, rest it's, of the family it's, system. It's very hard, you know, to, to face up to, you know, a part of yourself 
that does not, you know, complement or fit with with the way that you self-actualized. You know, that's that's really tough. Yeah. You know, and, and it's it's hard because, you know, on some level you're working with there's a denial piece of, you know, I can't change this, I can't do it. And I was like, well, can but but let's rephrase that because we because we really can't just, we really don't want to mm-hmm. you know <laughs> that's the reality and there is there's kind of smoke and mirrors going on um and i'm not sure how much they're aware of it but but they can be made aware of it and they can own it they can own it and be like yes i could i don't want to when they can they can actually personally uh like the the, the, the main core self in, in the far spectrum did cases can own that they're in control of of their internal reality and they can they can accept and change anything they want. Yeah. They can own that. Um, and that's good, but it doesn't mean they're going to choose to um, to unify themselves and integrate that trauma. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so so that's what's possible as yep. far as recovery is people being able to take ownership of, hey, I can manipulate my internal system or I can yep. adjust it and yep. reframe it and and become a more integrated person. And, and so it said EMDR is good for that neurofeedback, play yep. therapy, interpersonal, interpersonal systems theory, um, internal, family, internal systems. family systems and theory. internal family systems, you know, I'm sure we'll have a specialist come talk about that at some point with this uh, podcast, but internal family systems isn't in talking about your actual family. It's talking about you thinking about yourself as, as a family, this internal parts. And, and this theory is not designed for someone who has DID, which means that there are applicable principles for everybody, that we all have different ego states um, that interact with each other kind of like a family. And you can, you can, there's a theory for that. And again, I'm not the most, you know, eloquent or educated person to speak on that theory, um, but I have done some training on it. And that perspective is extraordinarily helpful, you know, uh, with, with, with working with DID. There's a lot maybe that should be added to it, um, but I do find that to be a very helpful system where we you're you're kind of working through you know i think there's some myths about did you know that they they come into hollywood too like is there a part that's evil no <laughs> okay you know is there is there is you know and there's, you run into things all the time with with clients like many 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 clients have this part they think is like dead or something it's like no it'll wake up you know <laughs> um, you know there's a lot of stuff like that um there are a lot of myths and rumors that that are true um, but right. we might talk about that separately too. Um, you know, some that might feel a little less believable, but there are things that are true, um, that are popularized and Hollywoodized and there are things that aren't. So for the student counselor, the prospective student counselor, or the, uh, counselor who's interested in maybe working with this more, um, what would you recommend for some first steps for education, learning, yeah. training? So start doing what those of us who specialize in it kind of have to do indefinitely. You know, I still meet with people that I think are smarter than me. I still work with people. I still meet and pay people who I think have more of it put together than me. Um, I still take trauma classes, you know, from the newest, you know, brightest people like Bessel van der Kolk and, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. The the guy who studies the brain and the nervous system. Dan um, Siegel? Dan Siegel, thank you. Uh, so yes. You know the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Dan Siegel, um, you know, and just about anything they can get your hands on, um, you know, constantly taking new trainings on EMDR, constantly getting supervision. So I'm interested in a training on play therapy because now yes. you've mentioned it several times. Everybody should take a class on play therapy. If I was in charge, it would be required. Right. Non-directive play therapy. Non-directive and play because, therapy. Because here's the thing. With play therapy, yeah, you can be a little directive sometimes, but you probably shouldn't for a very, very long time. And even when you are directive, 
you could be making a mistake without knowing it. And so it's always best just to study non-directive play. You're not going to, you know, mess things up there. Kids understand a lot less than we think they do. And that's true when you study the brain. They're mostly thinking, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed mm. to say? And and that's not therapeutic, okay? <laughs> but for play therapy, is there a particular training, particular trainer, online? I like anything by uh, Gary Landreth. Gary Landreth. And I believe that Maloma has taught many, many, many play therapy classes under the Gary Landreth model. Huh? Okay. Um, so I've taken many, many, like six or seven. All right. Um, then there's Santre, there's art therapy. You're going to find that there's commonalities between a lot of these, but the best, you know, just basic is, you know, I would take Santre or just play therapy. Santre is good because not everybody can build a playroom and Santre has a lot of the same elements as play therapy. There's going to be some directive components that I kind of ignore. I prefer more of a non-directive model, um, but they'll still cover that in the classes usually in a version of, of Santre. Um, it's like a little tiny room in a sandbox, you know, <laughs> put <Right>. it that way. <laughs> little tiny toys. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I'm really intrigued by this and I would love to love to study that someday. <laughs> so. Well, and sand is really, you know, putting your sand, not just sand, but, but, but toys, uh, you know, reference points. This is all very grounding. Um, you know, we need to kind of keep our patients grounded. You know, if they have a memory or an experience or an event that that's just too big for them to hold, well, then don't put it, put it, put it, put it down in a physical form. You know, it's just too much. You can't contain it. Let's, let's externalize some of it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and again, I'm thinking pop culture references. One that I come back to a lot of the time is, you know, in, in Harry Potter, you know, Professor Dumbledore has his pensive where he takes right. his important thoughts out and he stores them somewhere outside of his head right, where yep, like, yep. you can study them more. And I, I love that. And I kind of wish that was yes. real. But it sounds like it's well, kind, kind of, of is. <laughs> kind of is, yeah. It's just a, a sand tray. It, it does. A, it does feel real. It feels. It feels like you're getting sometimes an objective look. You're getting a different part of your brain when when you can get out of your head and look at it physically. And it doesn't. It's not actually. You know, these toys. You're like, I've got a walrus and a shark, and but you're choosing these very limbically. You're choosing these based on like this intuition of why does why does this event or this person feel like this toy? You know, there's there's a thousand words in that, and you took two seconds to pick it. You know what I mean? There's a lot of information. We just like don't have, sessions are not long enough when you work with the ID. You do not have a long enough session. So we have to find really um, aggressive ways of communicating lots amount, lots and lots and lots of information in a very short period of time. And so, it doesn't matter that you understand it or not. It's ma- It matters that they're expressing it. Right. Um, so sand, toys, yeah. maybe some paints. Uh, yeah. I, they communicate a lot. Right, right. And when you have the non-directive approach, the cool thing is if you just follow the rules, you're so not important, but you can get the job done either way. Meaning that like, like you're just following your rules and it does develop enormous amounts of attachment. Um, it does ground the client and, and, and you're kind of like doing uh, like any other non-directive approach. You're, you're following the non-directive rules. And it's it's very uh, forgiving for clinicians who aren't sure what's going on. <laughs> that does sound nice. And you're going to feel that way a lot with DID. <laughs> I imagine so. Well, goodness, I feel that way a lot with a lot of people in general. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it does sound like there is a way to navigate it and there's a way through it. And that, yeah. uh, well, I like how you talk about it. You know, ultimately, you're not, you're not the most important piece in this puzzle. Uh, you no. get to be a piece in the and, and you are really an important, important piece because of attachment, but right. even being non-directive builds attachment. Yeah. But ultimately, and, and it's like a lot of us say in a lot of theories where we say, you know, the client is the expert on their own selves and they're right. like one of the most important tools in their own recovery. And 
this seems to just be manifested really well here. Yeah, and there there is there is more skills again required with DID. There's there's a lot of again smoke and mirrors with DID. There's a lot of self inception and rules and created dynamics in their brain that um, that you have to educate them about, um, and that you need to bring containment. And they're they're very uh, high risk clients to work with, um, so you have to know you know how to handle some of those risk factors, um, you know, and you can't you can't have like a you know can't have a weak stomach right so definitely not something to just fall into by accident no no you should but, be under supervision of people who specialize in it you should have their approval to work with each individual client you should be going to constant training several times a year which i have every year um you should pursue multiple specializations in in you know uh trauma therapies mm-hmm. um yeah and but this is for like classic mm-hmm. dissociate dissociative identity disorder correct different than People who have PTSD, there's a dissociative right. component there. I'm believing, you know, people who have addictions, there's yeah. definitely a dissociative component there. Uh, you know, people with screen addictions in general, I mean, they're, they shift into that trance-like state. Right. And though that sort of dissociation sounds like it's not quite as volatile, maybe not quite as distinct as what well, you're talking Well, I think about. I might, and this is where, again, semantics can play in and definitions get hazy, but like when somebody has PTSD... There is dissociation, um, and I think that's really different than dissociation from early childhood trauma. And uh, maybe we use the same word for them, but um, I don't know. There, there is some difference there. Mm, yeah. um, and a lot of people that have like PTSD from war, you know, which is a stereotype that maybe needs to go away. Um, but it's, but they do, they do have it. But I mean, there are lots of other ways to get it because it's invalidating to a lot of my clients that come in. Um, but, right. but there's, there's a high chance that they were dissociative before. Oh, okay. Okay. Now it's not that, that, you know, that kind of fractured self-identity, um, the violation of self and the things that, that they, they, they experienced over there that that's causing this, this, uh, identity crisis and this, this, um, kind of fractured nervous system. Yeah. It, it does have components of what happened over there, but I'm not always convinced that, that the strongly dissociative people with PTSD uh, didn't, didn't have anything carrying over from their childhood. Oftentimes they do. So meaning that when there's a strong element of dissociation, oftentimes you got to look past adulthood, you know, into childhood. That would um, make sense. And that happens more often than you might think. And I'm not saying definitively that it has to be that way. I'm just saying that it's more often than you might think. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to you know you you would want to think of that and you'd want to you want to do some investigating. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, we are about out of time. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking. There's a lot more we can talk about that, but we'll, we'll, oh, yeah. Short, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to come back for another episode and bring in other people because like you said, there's a lot to talk about. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and sometime I want to theorize about sanitary therapy with addictions clients. Um, yeah. That just oh, sounds really interesting. Yeah. interesting. yeah. So anyway, for now, thank you, Josh, for your thoughts and your perspectives and Thank you, listener, for following us. Um, please do uh, subscribe to the podcast and uh, leave us a rating or a review. That would help us out a lot and make us feel good. And then you get to think of yourself as the person who reviews podcasts, which could be fun, too. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, this is me now. Right. <laughs> Thank you. And we will be back next time with more Smart Council. We love your feedback, so let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at at Smart Council 601. And you can email your questions to smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. 
Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This podcast was edited and produced by breakfastpuppies.com. <laughs>